Okay, so when I was in high school at Westview High School here in the Portland area, my youth pastor at the time organized together this class that met during our study hall period. That's kind of like what uh, the Mormon people would do during their time. They called it seminary. We called it Christian Faith and Thought, or CFAT for short. But one of our teachers in this class was a pastor by the name of Jim Kropolak. Now, that's a fun name to say, but he actually oddly interned underneath my dad at a church down in the, California, the Bay Area of California. But, and so when I met him in that class, he was like, no way, You're, that's your dad? It was a pretty cool like, little connection. But he passed away recently, not too long ago, just kind of out of nowhere, suddenly. And I've always remembered one story in particular that he told us during that class uh, about evangelism. He had taken his youth group to downtown San Francisco to do a missions trip there while he was serving as a youth pastor in the Bay Area. And they came across, while they're downtown San Francisco, one of these angry street preachers that just is telling everybody that they're going to hell and how horrible they all are, but that's basically the message. So he starts, so this preacher starts pointing at different people saying, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. And eventually he makes his way around and finds Jim, and he looks Jim in the eyes and he says, Jim, or he doesn't, he didn't know his name, but that's okay. And he goes, you're going to hell. And Jim looks at him and says, no, no, sir, I believe in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. And the preacher would not believe him and just kept going. And one of the most amazing moments I've heard in a long time, one of his students stepped up and looked at this street preacher in the face and said, you're standing here telling people the bad news. That's all you're doing. You're not even telling them the good news of Jesus. And at this point, a crowd had actually started to gather around them. And this student turns around and looks at the crowd and says, do you all want to hear the good news? And they all started nodding their head. Yes. And the kid, this 17-year-old kid, starts sharing the gospel to all of these people. And when he was done, he asked, does anybody want to give their life to Jesus right here? And a bunch of people just raised their hands in that moment. An amazing story of what happens when you actually share the full story of the good news. But many times, I think people in our world are far more aware of the bad news aspects of Christianity, of what we believe, rather than the good news. And I think, personally, Christians have become more known for what they are against rather than what they are for. And that is a really dangerous precedent to set. Because ultimately, we are about the good news of Jesus Christ ushering in his kingdom reign on this earth to reconcile all people to himself and reconcile all things to himself through his death on the cross so that we could be made right with God. So what we're going to see from Jonah today is that he gives the absolute bare minimum of information to the Ninevites, and then he throws another hissy fit toward God when things don't go his way. You see, Jonah still knows about what God's heart is really like, but he doesn't want God's heart to extend beyond the people of Israel. He doesn't want the good news to be given to a people that he actually dislikes and hates. So the question that's going to be left from the book will be, are we going to be like Jonah, not wanting God to show grace and compassion to the rest of the world, or will we truly participate in his mission to rescue the whole world? So I want us to keep this in mind as our main point this morning. God is compassionate to use us when we are weak and to realign us 
with him. So we're going to look at these two points in our time together this morning. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to finish the book this morning, get all the way through chapter 4. So remember, I believe this is a historical satire type of book, meaning that the author is depicting actual history, but he's using satirical tools to make the point that God is compassionate even towards the worst of the worst and wants them to come to repentance. And so just a quick recap of the story. Jonah rebelled initially when God told him to preach against Nineveh. He was then swallowed by a fish. And now he's finally going to go do what God had told him to do originally, preach against Nineveh's wickedness because God wanted to give them a chance to repent. And so bear in mind this morning that I'm really pressed for time because I'm going through basically two chapters worth of material. These were going to be two separate sermons, but because of what I told you about earlier, I'm going to have to skip probably some things that you're going to go, wait a minute, what does that mean? I don't understand that. I studied all of it. doesn't mean I'm like the perfect expert, but I likely can give you some sort of answer. So if you have a question, feel free to ask me after service or even to email me. So let's begin by looking at verse 1 of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So the first five words of chapter 3 are the exact same as they are in chapter 1. And so this shows God's patience and grace to give Jonah a second chance at what he's already called him to do. And that this message he is going to give him is coming directly from the Lord. But there's one significant difference that we see between chapter 3 and chapter 1. In chapter 1, Jonah is told to go preach against the wickedness of the Ninevites. But here in chapter 3, he is told to proclaim to the Ninevites the message God is to give him. And I think by doing this, the author actually might be foreshadowing for us the unexpected result of Jonah's preaching that the Ninevites might actually repent. And so the question now becomes, because it looks like that's what might happen, how is Jonah going to respond? Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So now Jonah realizes his disobedience to God is absolutely futile. So he chooses now to obey instead. See, God is so committed to reaching out to Nineveh in compassion that Jonah's disobedience will not stop God's initiative here. And so there's a lot of debate in the book or, or, with scholars over why it took Jonah three days to go through the entire city. But here is my opinion based on the different options on my research. I want you to think of Nineveh at this time kind of like the city of Portland. You see, there's all kinds of areas around Portland, all these little different districts, these little different cities that are around. And it would take a long time for a person without the uh, advent of in the internet and technology and TV to get through the entire city to proclaim the message everywhere. And so it took Jonah about three days to walk through the entire city proclaiming the message in different parts of the city. Verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And so likely this phrase, a day's journey into the city, meant he was trying to go into the city center where it would be a really good place for the message to get out to the rest of the city. But then he was, as he was going to the center of the city, he was proclaiming the message as he went along. But Jonah does something really odd with the actual message of what he says. 
He gives the bare minimum amount of information. What he says in Hebrew is a mere five words. That's it. In the Hebrew, it's five words. What he says here, there's no chance for repentance, no hope for the Ninevites. Jonah does not tell them about God's compassion to give them a chance to repent. And it's kind of like the story I told in my introduction. But this word overturned, overthrown, has a double meaning in Hebrew and could very well also mean be turned upside down, implying a change for the better instead of just destruction like Jonah wants it to be. The word literally means to turn like turning over a plate. God wants to turn the place completely upside down, even if Jonah wants it to be destroyed, and that's what he means when he says it, but God wants these people to repent, and he wants to see something happen. And so the prophecy, in a way, actually does kind of come true, as we're going to see, just not in the way that Jonah wanted. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So now they believe what Jonah has said was from God himself, and they're now going to trust in God as a result. And this is evidenced by their response of showing particular signs of repentance in those cultures in that day, fasting and putting on sackcloth. So fasting would be this idea of abstaining from food for a period of time to show dependence on God. And sackcloth is this very scratchy material that was made from goat's hair. And wearing it symbolized that a person was rejecting earthly comforts and pleasure. So these signs are about taking on a form of self-humiliation and discomfort to show submission to God. But the irony of this verse would have severely alarmed the Israelites, the original readers of this book. Wicked Nineveh quickly repented, but Israel was the ones who were continuing in their sin at this time in their history and were not repenting toward God. Verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. So here's where the story gets really incredible. It's not just a small, isolated group of people that are repenting, but now it reaches all the way up to the king of Nineveh, and he is showing repentance. And so because this is in Nineveh, we know that this is also the king of Assyria. So regardless of which king this is in the actual history, it's not really important to the author. Because each of the Assyrian kings during the time of when this book was, was written, all of them were cruel, they were brutal, and they had a bloodlust for conquest at this time. So the fact that one of them would repent like this would have absolutely shocked the original readers, the Israelites, as much as it would shock us to read about a story where some evil dictator like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin had repented of their own sins. But somehow, the message of Jonah literally touched the heart of the king, so much that he now puts off his royal robes and he puts on that sackcloth. He's becoming one with the rest of the people, and he is symbolizing repentance to the entire city. And sitting in the dust would show his humility in repentance and his own personal feeling of worthlessness before God and his own frailty. Verse 7. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. So here's 
kind of an interesting thing that happens in the story. Why does the king call for the animals to even have to show signs of repentance? What this suggests is that the heralds of the city who were taking this decree out to the rest of the city were going to all different parts. They were going all the way out to the suburbs, to the farms, and going out and telling all people about what they needed to do. What this is is a holistic type of repentance, bringing everything that Nineveh had underneath it so that they could show how serious they were about repentance. Nobody, not even the animals, are supposed to eat or drink anything as a sign of how serious they were about repenting. Verse 8, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. So again, the sackcloth is this scratchy and uncomfortable material to show how serious their repentance was, that they were willing to make themselves uncomfortable because they realized how grievous their sin was. So the king tells him, call urgently on God. This means to call on him with strength, meaning call on him with everything that they had to, in order to see and hope that God would relent on what he was trying to do. And that the king is saying, they, I want you to turn away from your, your wicked ways. The king wants everyone to, like in the kingdom to do it, not just some people, but everybody. And he's trying to be the first example of what that looks like. It's to turn from their entire way of life and not just a little bit of it and instead take up a whole different life instead. And so this includes their brutal and cruel violence that I talked about in the first sermon of this series, which is what they were notoriously known for. And so the, the Ninevites simply can't just say, oh, we feel so bad about what we did. Oh, that's too bad. But instead, it must be accompanied by a change in their behavior as well. Verse 9, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. This is still the king talking here. And even if the Assyrians were to genuinely repent, what he's saying here is there is still no guarantee that God is going to relent because their sin might have been too great at this point. So they're still going to try because there's a chance that God could repent or God could relent on his sin. But for God to relent here means to sort of change his mind about how he's going to act toward the Assyrians. He was brought to compassion toward them because of their signs of repentance. You see, God had been angry with their sin, but their genuine repentance could lead God to then show them mercy. And so really the tragedy of this story is that the Assyrians repented, it repented in such a radical way. But the Israelites, who were God's people, and they should be the ones who knew better, had not repented of their sin to this point, even though God had sent them many prophets and many warnings. You see, this book was a way for God to say, this is what happens when a people genuinely repent of their sin, but tragically the nation of Israel does not do this, and they are later conquered by the Assyrians not too long after the story of this book. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So there are two different words used here for repentance, one used for the Ninevites and one used for God. The word suv, translated turned here, means a change in attitude and direction, or like what we would use in our terminology as Christians, the, this conversion idea, and is used only for, the pe for people and the Ninevites here. 
Then you have this word only used for God when it says he relented, and it's this Hebrew word naham, another one of those fun words to say to get into the back of your throat. What it means is to be moved to pity. And again, it's exclusively used of God. It leads to a change of action, not a change of behavior like the other word. It means that God's heart is deeply moved by a genuine repentance like this. So he does not bring the destruction on Nineveh, and instead we see an overturning of the city where they completely change. So I want us to ask this question before I share my, our point on this. Did Assyria's repentance last? Because of time, I can only answer very quickly, no. It does not last. They eventually go right back to what they were doing before. But looking back at Jonah's poor effort to proclaim the message of God, here's what we must understand. It's our first point. God's compassion supersedes even our feeble attempts to share the gospel message. You see, the Ninevites' response shows that the power of God to bring people to repentance supersedes even our small attempts at sharing the gospel. We've got to understand this. It is by God's grace that people are saved, and it is him revealing himself to them. It is always by the power of God that people are saved, as shown here. When Jonah gives such little information, and yet the Ninevites still repent. See, I want to use this point as an opportunity to teach you something that has been very helpful for me when thinking about what it means to share my faith in Jesus. It is not up to you to save people. Let me say this again. It is not up to you to save people. By believing that it is up to you, you're putting unnecessary pressure on yourself to do only what God can do. Instead, it is simply our job to share the message with people and leave the response to them. And we rely on God's spirit to speak through us because it is God's job to actually bring the saving in people. So it is because of that that you actually, this is really key, you can't fail in sharing the gospel message as long as you share it with people. Since it's not up to you to save them, your measure of success in sharing your faith is whether you're actually sharing it or not. So even if you fumble with your words, feel like you're saying something wrong, you feel dumb, or you, you are not failing if you are just faithful to tell people about the message of Jesus. Because look at what happened with Jonah. He barely even tried, and an entire wicked city repented because of what God can do. And so here's my encouragement. Get out there. Just share the gospel. Do the best you can. Remember that it is God's power to save people. Let's continue chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. So Jonah's not happy that the Ninevites repented. But since the book kind of mirrors itself, like 1 and 2 mirrors chapters 3 and 4, we should expect at this point to see Jonah rejoice at the repentance of the Ninevites like he rejoiced at his own rescue in chapter 2. But because Jonah doesn't at this point, this chapter now stands out to point to the meaning and message of the, overall, of the book overall. And so this chapter shows how truly separated Jonah had become from God, from the heart of God, and as well, the same with the people of Israel. And so in this moment, we see how Jonah's repentance that he had 
prayed in chapter 2 was not fully genuine because he did not fully surrender to the ways of God in these kinds of situations and really understand the heart of God. Instead, his prayer for, of repentance was based solely on his own personal rescue, that he was thankful that he was rescued, but not for a devotion to God and God's mission. Verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So now we hear officially why Jonah had fled from the Lord. There was this conversation that had taken place between God and Jonah, and Jonah heard about what God wanted him to do, and he said, Nope, I don't want to be a part of that. So he fled. But Jonah references where he talks about God's character here. He references Exodus 34, 6. And this is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the biblical authors. It's a description of God's character attributes to extend compassion and grace to people when they relent from, and repent from their sins. Even those who have been exceedingly wicked, like the Ninevites. And so God is patient, and he relents from sending calamity, but he doesn't act in his anger right away, but he gives people time and opportunities to repent of their sin. So knowing this about God, Jonah chose to run away because he disliked the Ninevites that much. Jonah does not want this particular people group he dislikes to share in the mercy of God which really shows how little he understands or knows the heart of God. Verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah has created his own view of how God should act in his mercy and compassion, and that is what has brought him to this point. God hasn't forced this on him. This is Jonah's own perspective bringing him here. So instead of Jonah repenting of his own sin, he again would just rather die than see the Lord be merciful to wicked people. And so Jonah's hypocrisy is on full display here, and he just can't see it. Because the same God who rescued him from his death, Jonah does not want him to rescue others. Verse 4, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? And I love how God asks questions in these types of scenarios. Instead of just like laying the hammer down and smacking him with some truth, instead he asks a question. You see, I think God asks these types of questions to lovingly draw people out of themselves and their sin toward himself. But this is a form of rebuking as well, to reveal to a person the craziness of their thinking. And so what God does is he's actually ignoring Jonah's statement that he wants to die and simply just asks him about his anger instead. And again, the question itself is rebuking and the answer is obvious. No, of course it's not right for Jonah to be angry about this. But what we're going to see is that Jonah doesn't even respond to God's question as well and instead seeks to justify himself. Verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So why does Jonah go out of the city and wait to see what's going to happen? Well, I think it's because he held out hope that God was going to actually still bring about destruction. Like he was going to be a witness to a Sodom and Gomorrah type event from Genesis where he sees fire and brimstone and the whole city goes up in flames. 
But rather than admitting his ad- that his attitude needs to change and he needs to repent, Jonah now hopes God will indeed act in judgment against the wickedness of Nineveh. But it is likely where Jonah settled down outside of the city that there wasn't much natural vegetation for him to sit underneath and find shelter. So now he's pulling together some for himself. But doing in this way, you would know this, is not a a sustainable way. Like when you pull a flower from a bush or something like that, it withers pretty quickly. But if you leave it there, it'll stay a little bit longer. So a better solution would be for something to grow out of the ground itself to provide him shade. Verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. So the plant is exactly what Jonah needs at this point, a growing plant that could last longer by being rooted into the ground than the man-made shelter he had put together. And so the literary symmetry that the author is using here is really beautiful. He uses this Hebrew word, manah, which means It's translated here as provided. It means appointed, like for a job. And it's the same word the author used for the fish swallowing Jonah, that God provided or appointed a fish to give a job for him to swallow Jonah and take him back. And so you're going to see this word show up several times through the rest of this story. But God now appoints this leafy plant to give Jonah shade. But God is trying to do something even bigger for Jonah than just simply ease his discomfort as it's translated here. But he wants to use this plant as an opportunity for an object lesson to Jonah about his attitude. Because there's a double meaning at play here in the Hebrew. The word ease actually could be really translated to deliver or snatch away. Or discomfort is literally the Hebrew word for evil. So in other words, what God wants to deliver Jonah from is his own evil attitude and his own evil way of thinking and not just ease his discomfort. God is trying to continue to rescue Jonah despite his stubbornness of heart. And so no matter what here, Jonah's mood improves with the plant and we're seeing Jonah's selfishness continue. Verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. So there's that word again, provided, the Hebrew word manah, which means to appoint. And this time, it's a little worm to chew up this plant. So we're seeing from the author, he's basically saying, God is so sovereign and in control of all of the events that are happening throughout this story, that he's even going to use a little insignificant worm to accomplish his purposes. And he can, and so God can rescue, but he also can destroy, and he best knows when it is right to do either one. So now Jonah is going to have to deal with the elements on his own while God is teaching him this lesson. Verse 8. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And so these elements could have caused a heat stroke for Jonah where he felt seriously ill and he was kind of at the point of death again like he was when he was about to drown in chapter 2. And so this time he now repeats the statement he made in verse 3 that he would just rather die. And so now God provided a scorching wind. There's that word again. Manah in the Hebrew meaning to appoint. Again, God is orchestrating these events. He's trying to get Jonah to understand that he is completely out of step with God's will. 
And so these two verses, they mirror each other with Jonah's response, verse 3 and verse 8. And we see the two main issues that Jonah is just not getting in how he's questioning God's character. In verse 3, he's questioning God's desire to deliver wicked people from their sin. And in verse 8, he's questioning God's right to destroy something when he sees fit to do it. So overall, Jonah is just really struggling to align himself with God. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. So the repetition of these similar phrases from verse 3 and now verse 8 and 9 point to the difference between the things that Jonah is upset about that I just referenced. It's God's attempt to now prick at the conscience of Jonah. See, we've got to always understand this. God uses circumstances in our lives to prick at our consciences, to help us grow and to become more aligned with him. Sometimes I think we reject things like these happening because we don't, because we feel like we're being attacked, but sometimes God wants to use them. Maybe he's not causing them, but he wants to use them to help us grow. And so Jonah is overly focused on his own view of justice being right rather than allowing God in his own perfect righteousness to allow for mercy toward undeserving Nineveh. So in Jonah's fight with God, he's now lost the sense of his life being worth living. And so for Jonah, if God is going to act in such irrational ways, then what is the point for him to continue to live? So Jonah was so obsessed with seeing justice brought upon a wicked people that he was not seeing God's heart to be merciful, which is something Jonah had experienced for himself when he was drowning and God rescued him. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. So in these two final verses, God is going to have the final word, and he is going to create a contrast between him and Jonah. Right now, Jonah is in this mode of self-pity, even if uh, from our vantage point, it's self-inflicted. Jonah had so much concern over a plant that he had absolutely no role in helping to grow. And Jonah's attitude toward wanting to not have this plant be killed for his, because of his comfort, but instead he had allowed for the sailors and the Ninevites to possibly perish because of their sin, shows how wrong Jonah's attitude is. You see, it's Jonah's attitude that is irrational and not God's ways of justice and mercy. Verse 11. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? So here's where God drops the hammer fully on to Jonah. Jonah has his priorities all mixed up by caring more about a plant than he is about the souls of human beings. So here's the flow of logic here that God is using in this question. If Jonah is so concerned about this planet, or this plant, shouldn't God have more concern over the Ninevites because they are actual human beings? It points to the absurdity of Jonah's anger. These are people who are somewhat ignorant of their evil, but God wanted to use Jonah to make them aware of their evil and give them a chance to repent and recognize their sin. Instead, Jonah was filled with so much hatred toward the Ninevites that he rejected the heart of God toward the wicked and wanted it only to be for himself and for his people. 
But one of the more fascinating aspects of this book is that it ends in a question. And we don't see Jonah's response. Did Jonah really come to understand and agree with God's point? We're likely never to know. But the force of having a question be the end of the book is a way to throw it back at the reader. Are we going to have compassion toward the souls of wicked people like God does? Are we going to be more focused on less important things like Jonah has been? Are we going to fully submit ourselves to God and trust him in knowing when it is best to rescue people from sins or to bring about just punishment for their evil? And here's our second point this morning. God's compassion rebukes us to align us more with his heart. You see, we might not think of rebuking as being compassionate, but sometimes that's just what we need. When we look at Jonah's story, the whole point of it was to show Israel how they had lost their alignment with the heart of God and had become wicked themselves, and they were not repenting. This book was meant to shock them and wake them up to what they need to be and for them to repent. So for us as Christians in the 21st century, what do we need to do as a result of this book? How can this shocking compassion of God rebuke us and wake us up to what we need to be? I think there are so many different things, but I'm going to focus on one this morning that has been at my heart for a while. We have to stop looking at people as our enemies. Whether they are from ISIS or the Taliban, Democrats, Republicans, the GOP, leftists, LGBTQIA+, people, liberal theologians, racists, you name it, certain political figures we don't like, none of these people are, are our enemies. Instead, they are people to be loved and pursued like Jesus has loved and pursued us. I want to show you this from Ephesians 6. This is a beautiful verse. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is what we need to understand. People are not our enemies. It's the spiritual powers behind them that are our true enemies, that deceive those people we tend to disagree with, we dislike, or sometimes even get to the point of hating them and sometimes believe that God cannot redeem them. But when we do that, we become like Jonah. So we must not be like Jonah and let our dislike or distaste for what they believe, say, or do drive us to believe that Jesus did not save them. And this also doesn't mean that we don't share that some of these things that they're doing are evil, but it means we show the love of Jesus to them in a great relationship with them. And so what do we do? We pursue every person possible to share the love of Jesus with them, to rescue them from their sin. So the compassion of God re rebukes us so that we become more like him, more aligned with his heart. And God's heart is to rescue all people, no matter how wicked they are or what they have done in their past, no matter how much they have sinned, and bring them to himself. And if you're feeling like that's you this morning, that you feel like you have been so wicked you could never come before God, this invitation is for you too. This is for everybody. But it's our job as Christians to be a part of that rather than pushing against it or letting ourselves be distracted from it by less important things like Jonah was. And so to conclude this series, Jonah's story should be a cautionary tale for us. It should be a sobering reminder that we as God's people can lose sight of what it means to be his people. 
We can become numb and selfish, self-focused, or prejudiced in a way where we can't see the needs, the spiritual needs especially, or the the real enemies around us, and God's heart towards rescuing all people. I want us to understand this. Jesus did not die just so that we could go to heaven someday or have our conscience cleared from the guilt of our sin, but to pursue others who desperately need the grace, mercy, love, and compassion of God. And so there are, there are people who are around you who might be the only person who is ever going to hear about Jesus from And so don't let human categories determine who you should pursue, but instead let the love of Jesus lead you in that. So let's conclude by asking a few questions. What are some things you've cared about more than the souls of the people that could be saved around you? Your career, your reputation, your grades in school, your kids, your family, so many other things. But who are some people that you've viewed with hostility or viewed as your enemy rather than the true enemy of of being the devil and his schemes? And how can you pursue them, those people today, with the love of Jesus instead? And what steps can you take to realign yourself with the heart of God? And let us remember, God is compassionate to use us when we are weak and to realign us with him. Let's pray. God, thank you that you realign us with your heart. God, we are weak. We are frail. God, we have ways that we divide ourselves by categories, God, because it's so easy to do. I know I do it all the time, God. It's something I need to change, and I repent of that sin right now. God, I pray that we would be people that seek to follow you, to be not like Jonah, but instead be like you, pursuing people who need the grace and mercy of your son. So Jesus, thank you that you have done this for us. God, that you love us. You have given us the good news of Jesus and you came and you died in our place so that we could be made right with you. So God, as we continue to worship, God, I pray that we would be centered and focused on you, giving you the glory for who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.